You take your Bibles and turn uh, back to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. We're not going to be going through the whole passage this morning that we read through for the scripture reading. We're only going to be going through uh, verse 17 to 20. Uh, we will eventually be getting through this book. Uh, I've got probably two more sermons in the book of Romans. And then uh, we will uh, have a sermon on uh, or two on what uh, the Lord's got for us here at HCS. Uh, or HBC, excuse me, uh, get out of school mode. Uh, and uh, then uh, we'll start a series in the book of Genesis. And uh, we're going to go through that book. If you understand that book, you've got uh, basically an understanding of the rest of Scripture. You can kind of work your way through and uh, be understanding what's going on there. But uh, we're going to work our way through uh, that book that is uh, the really the pattern and guide for our understanding of the rest of what God's doing in this world. I don't know if you've ever had someone who disturbed the peace in your neighborhood. Okay, I don't know, you know, I, I think of this and I think of uh, an individual by the name of Ernest T. Bass that likes throwing rocks through people's windows and hollering and yelling and that type of thing uh, when you have individuals like that. I grew up in uh, Lyle uh, in a nice, quiet community there, but there is a, a legendary story in our community there that a man that was across the street from us in one house over took matters into his own hands when there was a teenager that was disturbing the peace. See, what would happen, this is back in the late 70s and early 80s, it was that uh, people would put their trash out the night before uh, they would go to bed uh, and uh, the next morning the trash would come along and be collected at 5.36 in the morning so people would put their trash out by the street and they would do this and of course in that time frame most everybody had metal trash cans and that kind of thing and so uh, there was uh, an individual there in the community that would go through the community about two o'clock in the morning and he would go through and knock over all the trash cans with his, well, his, you know, think about this back in the 1970s, you had very big vehicles that were solidly made and, you know, they could drive through buildings at that point because of how heavy they were and that type of thing. Well, he would go and knock over all the trash cans in the community. I mean, he'd do this like 2.33 in the morning and it was his delight to do this. And so he did this for several weeks in our community. He would go through and just knock over all the trash cans and whatever else. Well, this man that was across the street and one house over was a former Marine. And he took matters into his own hands and he came up with a creative way to stop this disturber of the peace and a very sudden way to do this. What he did was that he went out and uh, he cut a hole in the bottom of the trash can that he had and in his front yard, he had a fire hydrant. And he put the trash can directly over the fire hydrant. <laughs> and so sure enough, one morning, early in the morning, about two o'clock in the morning, you could hear this guy going down the street and smashing over trash cans and whatever else. And then all of a sudden, the sudden stop and explosion as this young man hit the trash can and popped the lid directly off the fire hydrant and of course shot water everywhere. It was at this time that the Marine came out and he found the trash can and took it to his backyard. The teenager that was in the car was just really confused as to what had happened. This was something beyond the plans that were there. 
uh, people in the neighborhood by that time had called the police and said there's something bad going on here and the police eventually got there and they said to the young man what are you doing and why did you hit this fire hydrant and he went through his explanation of, well, you know, the, the normal, you know, I frightened teenager explanation. And he went through the whole thing. And he said, I was going through and hitting trash cans. And I hit this trash can. There was a fire hydrant hit in it. And of course, the policeman looked around. He goes, what trash can? <laughs> Needless to say, that young man stopped disturbing the peace. Never again was there a problem with individuals going through and smashing over trash cans in our neighborhood. Now, you say, why you bring a story like that? Well, there is this, and we've gone through the book of Romans, and some of you have not been a part of this. We're at a portion in the book of Romans where there's nice things going on and pleasant things going on. In fact, as you read through Romans chapter 16, the first part, you missed out on it. But there's a whole bunch of names there where the Apostle Paul is greeting people. Some of them he doesn't even know. He's just heard about in the church at Rome. And he's just saying nice things about them and good things about them and how well the church at Rome is doing and that they greet one another. And then all of a sudden, verse 17, the whole tone immediately and suddenly changes. And it suddenly changes where he says this, verse 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. I mean, to this point, he's been saying all sorts of nice things about people that are coming and going to visit, and you know, you greet them, and you take care of them, and you help them, and you do all of this. We want you to do that. And then all of a sudden he's saying, there are certain people have nothing to do with. And what we have here is a, a sudden warning. It, it's sudden and abrupt. People have questioned, you know, all of a sudden, you know, should this be here? Because it's all of a sudden right in the middle of all sorts of greetings and good things. But the Apostle Paul is warning about the possibility of something coming into the church that can destroy the peace of that church. That can destroy the good of what's going on in a church uh, that can break that down. And it can come in an instant. I mean, the abruptness of Paul suddenly introducing this uh, is disturbing. And so for us this morning as we look at this, we just as a church need to be aware that false teaching can come up at any time. And we need to be ready for it. Doesn't matter. It's been this way for thousands of years where you've had churches that have had false teaching come up. It's not a new thing, but Paul wants us to beware of this. And so as we go through this, uh, actually, I've done something strange here. I've actually alliterated my points here this morning, so you should be able to follow what's going on here. But what we need to see, first of all, is that the Apostle Paul, when talking about these false teachers, he says this, that there's a disturbance that comes from false teachers. You see, verse 16, uh, just before this, Paul said this, salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. And you say, well, well, how did you, you know, teach that? I wasn't here last week. I, I just said, you know, uh, greet one another with a holy handshake, okay? Uh, you go to other countries and they do greet one another uh, with, a, with a kiss on the cheek. I'm thankful in the United States we don't do that. But the idea there is to greet people with sincerity, generosity, a real concern for them uh, when they're a part of the church, that you are treating them that way. But what Paul says is this, all of a sudden he says, you're not supposed to do that for everyone. 
There's a certain group of people you don't extend kindness to, a favorableness, a generosity to, and it's people who are teaching something that is not in line with Paul's teaching. I mean, he makes that statement that they preach contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. Now, in church, you, you have to understand that there are certain people that are going to be in the church that are weak in their understanding. They're Christians, but they may not quite have everything exactly in line with what they're understanding. And Paul addressed a couple of those types of groups in the church. There were certain people in, in Romans chapter 6 that were thinking this, okay, since Jesus has saved me, that means this, that I get to do whatever I want to do. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul's statement is really abrupt. God forbid. Don't go down that line of thinking. And you go, well, okay, those people were just learning their Christian faith. They were understanding, okay, I'm saved. What does that mean? How do I live out my life? And, and Paul's going, okay, you need to shore up that kind of thinking. Later on in Romans 14 and 15, we dealt with individuals that are referred to as the, the weaker brother or the weaker sister. And you go, who is this? Well, there are certain people in the congregation that still, they're saved, but they have a conscience about the way that they used to live their life. And they, they connect that with Christianity, that those are things that we still ought to do. More than likely, they were probably Jews that had celebrated certain days and certain festivals. And now that they're in Christ, they're thinking that you still have to keep those days. And if you don't keep those days, somehow you're in disobedience to Christ. And, and Paul has to work out the fact, okay, well, you know, not all days uh, are to be celebrated. But some, for some people, they're still celebrating this worshiping God. Okay. We'll let them do that, uh, but some of you with the stronger consciences don't run over the consciences of those that are in this state. And so you do have groups that are weak in their understanding, and the Apostle Paul is not suggesting, listen, if someone's in, you know, not as strong in their thinking when it comes to the Christian life, that you suddenly do nothing uh, with them. In fact, you ignore them, avoid them. No, what Paul is dealing with here is a group of people who are coming along and saying there's some kind of other way to be saved. That there's some other way or path that a person can come and find God. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is that these individuals, what they're doing is you have a group of people in a church that are together because of what Christ has done for them. Jesus has saved us. That's why we're together. That's why we're meeting. That's our connection point. But what happens is that sometimes you have individuals that come in and go, well, no, no, that's not right. And so they cause a disturbance. Uh, verse 17 indicates that we have a disturbance from false teachers. But also, as you look at verse number uh, 17, you have directions about false teachers. What should you do with false teachers? Paul gives two instructions. The first one is this, is that you are, it says here, mark them. We might say, note them, take notice of them, pay attention to them. And this is not the first time in Scripture that you've had this statement where the, the Apostle Paul goes, I want you to notice somebody, pay attention to them. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, there's people who are 
preaching the gospel that are teachers that you ought to make note of them. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17 says this, Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them or take note of them which walk as so as ye have for us as an example. He says there, listen, there are people that are doing right or teaching right. You ought to take note of them. Pay attention to them. Pay special notice to them because what you'll find is a pattern because he says there, imitate us, mimic us that are living this way out in the Christian life. Do that. And so in a good sense, there are certain people that you're supposed to notice and follow their pattern. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here, there are certain people that you ought to note and not follow them. That's the difference. I mean, these are what Philippians 3 continues with, and I'm just going to read this passage where he says, you know good teachers, but there are false teachers. He says this, verse 18, for many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. They're not thinking about heaven. They're thinking about this present life. They live their life for right now. And you say, well, what are these false teachers going to do? They bring in things contrary to the gospel that you don't have to be saved by the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, these teachers bring divisions. Uh, You see there in verse number uh, 17 that these individuals cause divisions. You say, what do they do? Uh, Well, that idea of divisions is that they bring groups or factions. Uh, they, They group people off and try and get people to follow them. And uh, this is a, as you find in the scriptures, this is something that you will find unsaved people doing. And even saved people. Because our flesh naturally likes bringing groups to follow us. To follow what we're doing. Uh, You find in the passage in Galatians chapter 5 where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It also talks about the display of the flesh. And it says, if we're displaying our flesh, our own sinful nature, you're going to see these things. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife. And then there's this word seditions. That's the word we have here. Divisions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and all such like of the which I tell you, as I have told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. A person whose life is for these things, they're not a part of the kingdom of God. They're not saved. And there are people that come into churches and what they're doing is they're attempting to have factions that they're trying to draw off that are going to follow after themselves. And what they're actually doing, you find in verse 17, is that they're setting up And you have this word, offenses. It's translated in other places, stumbling blocks. What they're doing is that they're causing people to be tripped up in order to miss the Scriptures. And in fact, when you see that word stumbling blocks, it's usually talking about people who stumble over Christ in the sense that they don't understand what He is and what He's done, and they crash to their own eternal destruction. They don't get saved. And that's what some of these teachers are doing, is that they're coming along and bringing in stumbling blocks for people to, well, trip over Christ, ignore Him, 
pay no heed to them, and they miss the salvation that's in Jesus Christ. And so the direction is, first of all, you know people that are like this, people who are setting up factions for people to follow them, and they're, they're preaching and teaching something that's contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then the second thing, as far as directions about these false teachers, the Apostle Paul says this in verse number 17. It's the end of the verse there. It says this, and avoid them. You say, well, you know, aren't you supposed to try and help them and, and uh, be an aid to them? Uh, well, there's a, a situation where you announce to them what the gospel is and you declare it to them from the scriptures and you do that. But generally, when you have a person who will not change, they're in the church and they say, no, we don't believe that Christ saves or we don't think that he's sufficient or he's what you need. Uh, then what the scripture says is that you avoid them. You have this the apostle Paul throughout his uh, New Testament letters. When you have individuals that are like this, he says, listen, avoid them. I mean, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 14, you have this. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man. Here's that word again and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. It seems kind of harsh to do this, but what you realize is that what is being taught by these individuals bring devastation and can bring eternal harm to individuals. You don't want to give credence to those uh, people and those individuals and give them a stamp of approval by saying, it's okay, what they're teaching is all right, it's fine. Now, this is not a statement that I'm not around unsaved people. Okay? Understand that. The Lord had many friends that were sinners. What we're talking about here is a person who is intentionally going around and preaching something else other than Christ saves. And they're doing this with the intention of drawing people away from the gospel. And you say, well, how do you, you know, what does it look like to avoid an individual like this who is going to poison the minds of individuals and destroy them? I was thinking about this, and the illustration that popped into my mind was that uh, many years back we took a missions trip that took us out to Oregon, and we drove all the way out there in a van, and uh, we stopped about halfway and uh, picked up my wife's grandparents, and we went up into the Rocky Mountains and went along the Poudre River there, and uh, we're looking for places to get out just to see the scenery and enjoy the scenery that was there, and uh, we finally found a section of the river, seeing it was in the mountains. Most of the times it was rapids, but there was a nice flat area. And we got out there, and the kids got into the river and were wading around in the river. My wife got out with her grandparents, and uh, her uh, grandma, mama, uh, sat down at a park bench that was there, and they were having a conversation. And as they were having the conversation, Tammy began to notice that there was something moving behind mamma her mind she thought it was uh, perhaps a mouse or something like that and so she continued the conversation with mamma and and began uh, just trying to gauge what was going on and began to just kind of look and and move to see what it was and suddenly she began to figure out that this thing that was behind her actually had diamond shapes on it Now, my wife thought I was nearby, and so her first statement was, you know, Keith, honey, 
It wasn't me that was nearby, so no one really responded. But she finally got our attention, and she made the statement, there is a rattlesnake right there. Now, there was a resurrection there because uh, Mama, who had not moved very well at all, jumped out of that seat and moved. For the rest of us, what happened? Well, most of us uh, that were in the river went around where that snake was at. Of course, you had a few high school boys that were like, oh, let's take pictures. You know, that was the type of thing. That, and they, they wanted to get pictures of this. But everybody is taking a huge path around that snake. You know why? Because you're afraid that that snake may attack, may poison. That's what it means to avoid. You don't get near them. You avoid that as if they could actually hurt you or hurt somebody else. You say that's harsh. Well, it is harsh, but eternity is at stake. If someone grabs onto a, something that they think is going to save them that is different and contrary to Jesus Christ, it could mean eternal judgment for someone. That's why, as a Christian, you go, well, what am I supposed to do? Be around them, talk with them, give them? No, avoid them. And so you have these directions that you note these individuals, you make sure where they're at, and then if they are dangerous, you avoid them if they're a danger to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you get into verse 18, and it has this description of these false teachers. Okay, we've been given directions about these false teachers, but you get a description in verse 18 where the apostle says this, these are individuals, they are they that serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. We would say about them, this description, that they're slaves to themselves. See, you might not catch it in the text there, but in verse 18, this uh, word for serve is not just the generic word for serve. It's the word elsewhere that just means slave. I mean, one who is not able to make any choices of their own. They're a slave. They're owned by something or someone. They have no choice. And in this case, you have these individuals who are described as being slaves to their own bellies. And you say, what does that mean? Are they all about food? You know, do they like food? And you're like, no, this is not what it's talking about. You know, you like a good meal. Okay, you know, this is bad. No. What this is talking about is these people are known for their appetite and they're always trying to fulfill their appetites, what they want. And it's all the things that they're doing uh, that they're trying to get these things appealed to. And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, it's kind of interesting that at the end of this letter, the Apostle Paul is dealing with people who are slaves to themselves or their own creation. When we started off the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul says, this is the nature of people who are unsaved. I want you to go from Romans 16 all the way back to Romans 1 because uh, Paul is, is hinting at this passage that we opened up the book with. In Romans 1 and verse 18, it says this, that God has revealed his wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth. And the idea is that, that they're holding down the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God 
is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. And what it's saying there is this, is that people at least, you know, if they have no knowledge of Jesus Christ and, and have not heard the gospel message, they at least have in their own heart and they can observe certain things that there is a God. That he's got power, that he is a one who has created this world. He owns this world because he's created it. They've got that understanding in their heart. I would argue this, there's no such thing as an atheist. There may be an agnostic. You say, what's an agnostic? A person who says, I can't know God. But an atheist is denying what's in their own soul that there is a god and they can look at the world around them and they're saying there has to be something that is organizing all of this but what happens with mankind is this verse 21 because that when they knew god they glorified him not as god neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations their foolish heart was darkened and professing themselves to be wise they became fools and here's what they do they change the glory of the uncorruptible god into an image made like unto corruptible man or uh, to birds four footed beasts creeping things so what does God do? God says, okay, you can go your own way if you want to do that. Wherefore, God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own bodies to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served. Okay, there's the terminology we have in chapter 16. And served the creature more than the creator. See, here's what happens with mankind in general. If they deny who God is or that he exists, what they begin to do is they craft God and make an idol, and the idol is oftentimes a reflection of exactly who they are. What they want, what they want to have, that's what God becomes to them, and they become their own God. Well, that's what you have as far as the description, going back to Romans chapter 16, of these teachers. They're ones who have come along and decided uh, that they, through religious teaching, are going to get gains for themselves because they are idolaters, as one have said, satisfying their own egos. They found a market, they think, where they can get everything that they think they want. One pastor has made this statement about individuals that are false teachers that are like this. No matter how seemingly sincere and caring false teachers or preachers may appear to be, they are never genuinely concerned for the cause of Christ or for his church. They are often driven by self-interest and self-gratification, sometimes for fame, sometimes for power over their followers, always for financial gain, and frequently for all those reasons. Many of these false teachers enjoy pretentious and luxurious lifestyles, and sexual immorality is the rule more than the exception. I mean, you can go and, and watch television where you have what is called the gospel, but sadly it's not the gospel, it's called the prosperity gospel where it's this belief that if you do certain things, that life will be great and you'll get all the funding you ever need for whatever you want. And if you observe what's going on there, it's usually the people that are not in the pews that are getting all of the abundance. 
It's the one who's preaching. Remember reading a story of a prominent evangelist, a televangelist uh, that is known for going around in great crusades and, and having healing services and the like and doing all of this. And you find out they own numbers of Royal Rolls Royces. They have their own private jets, and this is just a part of the life. And I was reading an account of an individual who was a nephew of this that finally, after reading the Scripture and going through the Scripture, he found out and realized that that's not what life was about. The gaining of stuff, the gaining of these things, in some cases on the backs of other individuals, and that his family, uh, his uncle and his family were living in abundance and then he read what the scripture said about what the gospel truly was and it was about one who sacrificed his life for the sake and service of others and he realized we're not even preaching a gospel here it's a false gospel it goes by the title prosperity gospel but he goes it's no gospel at all it's nothing but plain old out and out flesh fleshly selfishness you know that's what you find and uh, sadly and I, I will say this you ought to be aware of a lot of the religious channels that you watch at times it's not to say that everybody on there is a scoundrel or anything like, like that but there are individuals on there that are called preachers and teachers that are preaching a prosperity gospel and if you look at what their life is like it's all about the getting of their stuff i mean paul is warning about this some two thousand years ago and we've seen it magnified in our time where you have individuals that by the preaching or teaching supposedly of a gospel they're showing that they're slaves to their own flesh and their own uh, own desires you say, well, how do these people actually get into positions like this? Well, look at how Paul describes it. Verse 18, by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. That phrase there, good words, is a, a word or a phrase used elsewhere in the scripture, and everywhere else it has the idea of good word. In fact, we have a word in English that is this Greek word, and it's the word eulogy think about this and you have a funeral you have a eulogy and you go is that it's good words about that person well what these people are able to do is that they're able to take with good words good sounding words nice speech uh, fair smooth speech as we might uh, say that they are able to deceive individuals into believing a lie and they sometimes even use scripture to do it and you say what does that sound like i want you to go back to genesis chapter 3 because you go back to genesis chapter 3 and you have the one who started the whole practice of reusing religious speech and religious sounding language to deceive people Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, you have this statement that the serpent, and realize this, we're not talking about a snake, we're actually in this case talking about the devil. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He's subtle, crafty. 
And here's the conversation that he has. You have people in a perfect environment. They're sinless. Adam and Eve living in a great place with a great job, great relationships. Only thing they're told is this, is you can't eat of one tree. Thousands of trees to choose from. You can't eat of that one tree. Don't do that. It's the only rule they have from God. And here you have this serpent who is Satan in verse 1 comes along and says this, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. He's actually using a statement of God. God said you're not supposed to eat of every tree of the garden. There's one you're not supposed to eat of. But it's the subtlety of speech. Now sometimes I wish the Bible had, you know, we could hear the tone of things here. Because he's not just asking an honest question. You know, did God say this? You know, no. It's, did God say this? You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, this woman that's here said unto the serpent, uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And then this response from Satan in verse 4, uh, ye shall not surely die. I mean, it's almost this, really? Do you think God's going to cause you to die for eating a piece of fruit? Really? Do you think he really said that? Do you, do you think he really meant that? He's actually using what the Lord said, but it's a questioning tone. Verse 5, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You know, the reason you're not able to eat of this is because God's holding back blessing from you. If you ate this fruit, you'd have all sorts of blessing. And you say, what happened? Well, verse 6 And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to desire to make one wise. And she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And you say, here you have two of the best individuals from the human race, Adam and Eve, individuals who at that point had no sin. And yet Satan is able to deceive them. And you have this disastrous conversation that led to the destruction and death of the human race. Individuals dying. And you say, so these false teachers are using the smooth speech, the subtlety that is what destroyed Adam and Eve and the human race. And he's continuing to do that through the garment of, and the garb of someone who's wise in the teaching area? And the answer is yes, he's still doing it. You say, how do you know that? Well, you read in the Gospels where Satan shows up and tempts the second Adam. And when you see the temptation of Christ, Satan actually quotes Scripture. But he quotes it out of context. He actually uses the scripture, but he doesn't use it in the context that it's supposed to be used in. And it's a, his attempt to try and deceive. And he's using the very words of scripture to try and deceive Christ. And you say, so there are people who are false teachers who will use the scripture and preach the scripture and will preach something else other than the gospel. And the answer is, yes, they will. 
And so what you have is that these people are smooth of speech. And you say, well, okay, this is what the description of the <clears throat> false teachers is like, is that they are individuals that are slaves to their own selves, and they're smooth in their speech. But you see in verse 19, here's the danger from the false teachers. What's the danger for the church? First of all, Paul says this, for your obedience has come abroad unto all men. And that word for is really because. Here's why you avoid these teachers and whatever else. It's because your obedience has come uh, to be known by many people. You say, what's the obedience? Well, the obedience that Paul has talked about throughout uh, the book of Romans is an obedience of faith. That God has called for mankind to believe on His Son. And in obedience, they believe on Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is, listen, you've had this obedience... You've obeyed the gospel. You've believed on God's Son. And it's being played out for people around uh, the Roman Empire to hear of. Because here you think about Rome. Uh, this church at Rome, it's in the center of the empire. All roads lead to road and Rome and from Rome. And so this, the, the church that's here, what's going on there, it's gotten out. And you say, well, what would Satan delight in doing in a work of God going on? It's to destroy it. You find good works going on in churches and this type of thing. What you'll find is that Satan can't bear for that to continue on. And for this church at Rome, lots of good things going on there. But what, what could possibly happen here if they grab onto the false teachers that are here, that the testimony of Christ that has gone out because of how they're living their life would be destroyed. I mean, they could be deceived by the subtlety of evil. And you look at the end of the verse there, Paul says, I am glad on your behalf, but that uh, yet I would have you wise into that which is good and simple towards that which is evil. What he's saying is this, I would love for you to be more knowledgeable in what you know about God and the gospel, that you become people that are saturated and understanding what this is, and that you become less and less knowledgeable about evil. The problem is, is that we live too much in this world and living around their statements and what they have to say and how they're living their life. And the problem is, is that many times we're not simple towards evil. We're very knowledgeable in it experientially and thinking of our own mind and and we've allowed this to happen and paul says you know i would i would for you to be knowledgeable about that is good don't dabble in those things that are wrong you don't have to know about them you don't have to be knowledgeable about them that doesn't mean you're ignorant but you don't have to experience those things you don't have to be involved in those things and the apostle paul is saying you hang around these people who are living their lives for themselves and that's all they live for and Paul, in another passage in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 15, he talks about evil, corrupt, or evil communications corrupt good manners. And the evil communications is evil friendships. You know, we're, we're too familiar with evil things and we're less knowledgeable about the things of God. And, and for the Apostle Paul, he says, I would have you avoid these false teachers and people who live as slaves to themselves and I would have you to be knowledgeable about those things to be, that are good. In fact, one has said this, it kind of sounds like this, that when Christ said to his disciples that you're wise as serpents and harmless as doves. 
that you're wise to the things of God, but you are not harmful to other individuals. One has said this in his commentary, so simple-minded as to, that you're not so simple-minded as to swallow whatever is offered. You're too good to deceive and too wise to be deceived. And you say, well, is there ever going to be an end to this? And the answer is yes, there is a destiny for false teachers. And you see this in verse 20. Paul kind of adds this where there, there might be going, you know, it'd be nice to finally have church and you don't have to worry about problems like this. When is that going to happen? Well, as far as when Satan is in this world, the prince of the power of the air is here and the prince that rules this world, uh, the devil is around, we're going to have false teachers. And so you say, how long do I have to beware in noting false teachers and people that preach contrary to the gospel? Until Christ comes back and crushes Satan's head. See, we read Genesis chapter 3, and we talked about Satan deceiving uh, the woman, but the curse upon him was this, that sooner or later the seed of the woman would crush his head though the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. See, it was a promise, as people look at in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. It's the first mention of the gospel where Christ would defeat Satan. And on the cross, he did defeat Satan when he cried, it is finished, the work was done. A person can be saved, the work's all done. He has broken people free from slavery to sin. But there's one who's trying to convince people it's okay to sin, and he's still in this world. And he's got people that have bitten into and taken in what he said, and they're following him, and they will continue to preach a gospel contrary to what is true, and they will do this until what day when Christ comes back and he crushes Satan. And you read in Revelation chapter 20 that he is cast not in the bottomless pit, though he's there for a thousand years while Jesus rules and reigns, but eventually what happens is this, is that he is taken and cast into the lake that burns forever and ever. His power is completely broken. Until that time, we need to beware. We need to be alert. We need to be alert to people who are preaching things contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ that are declaring things that, well, might save, but it's outside of Jesus Christ. And so for us, the question is, how, do a, how does a church stay sound? Uh, how does it, uh, a church realize false teaching? How does a church combat such subtle teaching? And Paul, just in conclusion, makes this little statement, and most people just kind of ignore it. They don't even pay attention to it. Look at the end of verse 20. It says this, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Say, so how do you recognize false teaching? How do you stand up against it? Uh, you know what? We're pretty simple people, and we can be foolish at times because we still have a flesh nature even though we're saved. It's by the grace, which another word for grace is the strength from Jesus Christ. Amen. He gives us the grace, the ability to stand, to recognize, to do these things. We need help. 
And the Apostle Paul just says, I'm praying for you, I've warned you, and I'm just praying that God will show his grace and mercy to help you. That he will help you stand uh, and recognize false teaching. And so for us uh, as a church, you know, it could happen at any time. We have individuals who suddenly start preaching something different, and they can oftentimes come from within the church. They can come from without the church. But we just need to be ready to note and avoid by the grace of God, and hopefully this church will remain strong in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the obedience of faith that is found in many in this room that know Jesus as Savior, that that will continue on and that Christ would be lifted up. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the warning that we receive because sometimes we are foolish people. We don't see the danger of certain things. And in this case, the Apostle Paul, he's warning about something that can be eternally deadly. The subtlety of Satan where he's looking to destroy all of humankind, to draw them away from God. He's been doing this for centuries upon centuries, for thousands of years he's been doing this. He's doing it in our day where he's drawing people away, even with people who would call themselves religious. He's drawing people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to be aware and alert. And by your grace, may we be willing to stand on the gospel that Jesus saves. And that we would not back down, even though it seems like we've got the pressure of the world upon us. And even in some cases, demonic foes facing us. That we stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace that you gave us in Jesus Christ. May we live that out and hold up Christ every day of our life. And this we pray in the name of the Son. Amen.